This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. discretion is advised. I'm going to be talking today with an author of a book that is just out. You can buy the book on Amazon in the show notes below or from the author's website signed directly. Uh, This is not a show for children because we're in fact going to be talking about children. Did you know that on average, the age of entry into human trafficking is 12 to 14 years old for girls and it's even younger for boys? 57% of sex trafficking victims are under the age of 18 years old. The average trafficked person generates $300,000 in revenue over the lifetime, the short lifetime of that trafficked person, meaning that that person is systematically abused 15 to 20 times per day. 60% of children uh, exploited in prostitution are recruited by their peers. These and other shocking facts are going to come out in today's video. And the fact of the matter is we need to know not only uh, how to detect the signs, what to do about it. Uh, So I'm very uh, glad to be joined today. John, welcome to the program. Welcome to Restoring the Faith. And I'm pulling up your book here. I want people to see the name of the book where is it? Can we get it here? It's called It's Not About the Sex, True Stories of Human Trafficking from Law Enforcement Officer, a Survivor, a Brothel Madam, and an Advocate. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, this is a heavy topic. This is something that I think a lot of people don't know is such a huge problem uh, in the world today. What, What made you write the book? Well, I I thought about researching and writing about one of the things that I consider uh, the most evil thing that you can do to a person, and um, and human trafficking was really at the top of that list. And as a as a person before I started researching this and writing about it, I knew a little bit about human trafficking, uh, but not a whole lot. And I figured mm-hmm. that if if I'm only knowing surface level information, the average person out there is probably in the same boat. And I wanted to write compelling stories that would have people, you know, want to turn the page and find out what happens next. And then realize at the end that they actually learned something about what was going on and, and how human trafficking happens, how predators work, um, and what you can do about it. So you took on so you took on the project from purely from a point of view of I know this is a big problem, I don't know as much about it as, as and and therefore other people might not know about it. So you did this entirely as a as a as a giant research paper essentially. Yeah, I I kind of got the bug in my ear um, prior to that when I was writing my first book, which was about police officers, and uh, I asked them a bunch of questions about, you know, tell me about a day on the job you'll never forget. And I got a bunch of interesting stories. And just as the interview process went on, I would ask these random questions at the end. 
And I asked one of the guys, uh, if you won the lottery, what would you do? And he said, I'd quit my job and I, I would hunt down human traffickers. And wow. so that really stuck in my brain um, throughout writing my first book. And then I knew that this was going to be the subject of my next book. And then I realized I, I didn't really know that much about it other than a few headlines here or there. And I found out there's a lot of misperceptions and, um, you know, most people don't really know that that much about it. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that. I count myself amongst those people. Um, I would say, I know, I know a, a little bit more than most, but talk to us a little bit about just kind of like the bullet point items that everyone needs to know. How big is this industry? How big is this problem? Because very few of our national leaders, our politicians, or even uh, our, our famous law enforcement uh, type officers in, in, in the country, um, I don't think that they make it very clear what a huge problem this is. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah, globally, it's the number two criminal enterprise after drugs. And here in the States, it makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And I think people find that to be pretty shocking. And you know what's different from, say, drug crimes is you have this person that you're using over and over again. You're not having to you know, go buy uh, drugs or make it and then find a way to sell it. You're selling people, uh, which really, in my mind, makes it a lot worse. I think one of the things that's really surprising is people think that um, the victims of this crime are kidnapped, and that's really only three to five percent. That that's not where it comes from. It it can come from the foster system, runaways, but a big portion of it comes from suburban and rural America. I, the headlines that we see are many times in big cities, you know, Los Angeles, New York, et cetera, or on the border. Uh, and that's real. That That's absolutely happening. But what's really shocking to most people are what's happening in the suburbs, the nice communities. Mm -hmm. And how mm -hmm. are teens that are still living at home being trafficked and nobody knows about it and nobody talks about it? And so I focused on stories that were really in those small town suburban America, where I think most of the most of the uh, readers are, are surprised. And to me, that was my target market. I wanted that, you know, the average citizen, the soccer mom, um, you know, the person who uh, doesn't really research this all that much. I, I wanted them to read gripping stories and. Uh, and learn something at the end that uh, it's happening right under your nose. That I think that is the most shocking stat or, or maybe one of the top three most shocking stats that I read uh, when, we were, when I was preparing for this interview with you. Only 5% because it's really easy to imagine. Okay. Yes, it's a problem, but, but these people who enter this industry are all doing it against their will. They have been kidnapped. If I just keep a good handle on my children and make sure that they're not snatched at the grocery store, then that's my best way to keep them safe from this particular thing, right? But only 5% are stolen people. I mean, the other 95%, I guess, are walking into this and for, for uh, various reasons. Now, you, you point out that a lot of them have already been abused, that, that they're four times or 10 times or some number of times more likely to become uh, in engage in this industry if they've already been abused at home or at school or, or, or what have you? Yeah, absolutely. That statistically, you're, you're more likely to fall into trafficking if you've been sexually abused at home or even physically abused at home. Another shocking thing is that this happens with families. And one of the stories that I wrote was the story of a grandfather selling his granddaughter um, to his friends for sex, essentially. And a lot of people don't don't realize that 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 
happens a lot more than what we would think. Now, the other piece to this is technology. And one of the uh, one of the things that that happened in the pandemic is people felt more isolated and they ran to online chat rooms and and friends online for that social interaction that they weren't having normally. That feeds right into uh, predators on the Internet that can lead to, you know, human trafficking, as well as other things, whether that's asking for nude pictures or wanting to meet up at, at a motel or something like that. Those chat rooms that the exposure that teens have is a lot more than the average parent realizes. I want to talk about your book and the structure of your book, because I think it's pretty unique. You, you show stories from law enforcement point of view, uh, from the point of view of a woman who was sex trafficked and got out of it. Um, walk us through the structure of your book, the point, the various points of view uh, that people are going to get insight into. Sure. So um, w- one of the uh, one of the characters um, that's in the book uh, is a a lady who was a youth minister, and uh, she was traumatized by a rape in her early twenties. And I really wanted to write this story of hers from the first person point of view where it was like you and her are sitting down just like we are and we're having a conversation and she's telling you the story so she literally talks to you in this story and i wanted to get the reader to understand everything that was going through her head and she after this rape was very traumatized and decided to go into an escort service um, in the Denver area, that led to moving to Los Angeles for um, pornography, came back to Colorado and uh, decided to uh, open up her own brothel. And those decisions and how she decided to do that and why she did decided to do that were, I, I couldn't imagine what answers I was going to get when I started that interview because I just couldn't quite figure out that logic. And so we talked a lot about that and we talked a lot about what was going through her head. And the bottom line for her is that she was chasing sin instead of opening the door for Christ. And that was really the bottom line. And and she, you know, there's quotes in this in her story about I went to the bottom of the sin barrel or she felt abandoned by God. If you abandoned me, well, I'm going to go work for the other guy. And that's what she did for a decade. And, and then, you know, it's a great story because the last part is sometimes you have to get to that you know bottom of the barrel in order to really come back up. And that's when she came back to God, came back to the church and and really um, you know has a beautiful ending in that sense and how she became a stronger person uh, at, because of it and she also is a is a vocal advocate now um, especially with the anti pornography um, movement. Yeah, that's in, that's incredible. I'm I'm scrolling this, and this is this will be one of two or three times that I mention your website. It's not about .com, and I think what I'll do is I'll pull up your website just so people can see it. If you go to it's not about .com, you'll see you'll you'll have the ability to purchase the book on Amazon. You can purchase a signed copy direct from the website as well. Shining a light on human trafficking, extraordinary stories about real people. John, tell us a little bit more about uh, one, of the, one of the other stories or, or two other stories that we are going to find in your book. Uh, sure. So one of the other stories is about uh, Janelle Goodrich, who started a nonprofit in the Denver area. And so she's the advocate uh, for underage um, teens typically as a case manager, as, as they're getting out of this situation. And so part of her job is to navigate the systems and 
services that are available by the state and, and other uh, nonprofits. And, and that's what she does. And I picked a couple of stories that I thought were really important for her, which was one of them was where a teen was recruited out of high school by a supposed new friend of hers and and met up with this older uh, guy who it what 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 what's called in the movement a, a Romeo pimp, which as the name implies, the person acts like a boyfriend, uh, is very manipulative, will you know give lavish praise and et cetera, but then turns it into a situation where um, the girl is really exploited. And so this teen was, you know, right out of the case file, obviously changed names, circumstances, et cetera. But this kid was living at home while this was happening. And, um, and, and the story just goes through, you know, how this happened, how this person was groomed, and then the emotional fallout for her after this all happened. The other part of, of Janelle's chapter talks about uh, another important issue, which is how a teen also living at home was um, was lured in in chat rooms from a gaming. And that mm -hmm. happens all the time, whether it's online gaming or other apps. They all have chat rooms, instant messaging, that kind of thing. And yeah. this person was, was also a Romeo type of pimp where he befriended her, spent some money on her, and then got her hooked on drugs. And when she became addicted, that's when he forced her to essentially sell her body um, in order to get those drugs. And so that's also a, a real uh, phenomenon, you know, right out of the case file. And those are two things that I think a lot of parents don't think about. Well, they're living at home. How bad could it be? Well, it actually could be really bad. And especially if a teen gets gets hooked up with drugs, um, they're much easier to manipulate mm -hmm. and they become defiant. You don't know what's going on. It, you know, defiant behavior can happen in many different circumstances, but it, it can absolutely happen in human trafficking. And it's such a emotional, um, you know, high emotional drama for this teen because uh, they know what's going on is wrong, but they, you know, if they're hooked on drugs, they, they can't help themselves. And they're just, you know, once you get in, it's just really difficult to get out. You, you point out uh, that the typical life expectancy is uh, seven years or less for someone who's into human trafficking. Uh, you can, you can certainly sort of surmise that when you, as, as you've laid it out, a, a typical case where you're hooked on drugs, there's dependency, um, it's not a safe lifestyle, you're inherently in, uh, in danger every day, um, that biological danger, physical danger, violence to your body. Um, the recruitment process has to be ongoing then, right? You, you, these, these pimps have to continually replenish their supply of trafficked humans because you know they, they've got a shelf life well yeah they they can age out and th the seven years isn't how long they're being trafficked that's how long they're expected to live as you can imagine the suicide rate overdose rate from drugs is much higher um, in these circumstances and it's 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 a situation that's just really you know, really horrible. And un unless you're getting help, it's, it's really difficult. And what, what the law enforcement officer told me is bottom line, these pimps have no value for life. And they've, they believe that they can replenish that teen with someone else pretty easily, pretty quickly. And unfortunately, most of the time that's true. And so when you devalue life like that, it's, you know, they have no qualms about if they're no longer useful, just getting rid of them. And then that person could be out on the streets um, in, in different kinds of danger. And, 
you know, the, the tactics of the pimps are twofold. The, you've got what, what's called, you know, the Romeo pimp, which is kind of luring the person in as, say, a boyfriend. And then you've got what's called a gorilla pimp, which is really the violence. They're beaten. They'll take their money away, their phone away. They'll control when they eat, when they can go to the bathroom. They may be watched constantly. And so they really have total control on them. And they know that as soon as they break this person, that the compliance of doing what they're told is going to go up. And unfortunately, it's just not that hard to break somebody when you're that violent and, and, and they're just, you know, they just can't handle what's going on. Talk to us a little bit about the typical victim who would fall into this. As you said, in the first part of the show, it happens all across the country, suburban America, rural America, but Tell us a little bit more. Do these young people have fathers at home? Are they typically from divorced homes? Um, are a high percentage of them abused physically or, or, or whatnot? Um, do they come from poor neighborhoods? Are they, are they middle class? I mean, just, just describe to us who all could be possibly trafficked in this country. Uh, sure. So uh, you asked a lot of, of, of different questions and there's a lot of different factors. I think one of the one of the first factors is going to be an unstable home life. Uh, you know, there's an old saying that that says, if you know, strong fathers equal strong daughters. That's not going to guarantee that you're going to avoid pitfalls um, of any kind, uh, including human trafficking. But an unstable uh, home life is definitely a contributing factor. And if the parents are on drugs or uh, are abusing alcohol, um, they may be more likely to be in a domestic violence situation. That may cause the teen to run away. Um, it can also cause uh, the, the teen to be taken out of that household, put into the foster system. There are many, many foster parents that are loving and caring and, and great. There's also a good portion that are not. And a lot of times foster kids are just not given a lot of attention. And especially as a teenager, they really crave attention. And with technology, for example, you talk to any teen, if they're not getting enough likes or followers or about something they've posted, that can lead into depression and you know they're just looking for that affirmation and that's something that can that typically in, in my opinion starts with the home life and the worse the home life is the risks just go up we're talking today with uh john uh Ma sorry digior say say your last name it's DiGirolamo. It's easier to say than try to look at the spelling. John DiGirolamo, uh, you're the Just author. John. Now, now, John, you've written a couple books now, but today we're talking about it's not about the sex. True stories of human trafficking from a law enforcement officer, a survivor, a brothel madam, and an advocate. Uh, what I want to ask you about, John, are, are the solutions. Because, or, or at least move us in the conversation more towards solutions. But to get there, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that you have to be able to recognize the signs. And there are signs, right? What are, the, what are some of the signs that you are potentially interacting with a human being who is being trafficked or is at risk of being trafficked? Or um, even more uh, acutely, and I don't know if, if you have an answer to this question, how can you tell or are there any warning signs that you are interacting with, you know, this Romeo pimp or this gorilla pimp or any of these other bad actors that are in this industry? Sure. So th there's there's a lot that you covered. So I, I kind of look at it in three parts. I think what the average 
citizen needs to do is first gain some awareness and education. And that can be listening to this podcast. There are several uh, nonprofits, you know, all across the country that has that have training. Um, the uh, uh, the local nonprofits will, will, will typically uh, be able to provide you a lot of information and then get involved with those nonprofits uh, and you can help in a variety of ways. The, the second thing is part of that awareness is you may, you know, it might not be your kid that's being groomed, but it could be someone on their soccer team or it could be a friend or who is that quiet kid that never talks to anybody. And one of the things that you, that you see a lot with is if there is any unexplained gifts, especially a second cell phone. So that's a, that typically means they're trying to hide something. It could mean human trafficking. It could mean something else. So definitely any of that uh, extra gifts, if, if it's somebody who all of a sudden has new jewelry, but they don't have a job and their parents aren't well to do. Why do they have new jewelry? Why do they appear to be giving, you know, receiving lavish gifts? If they have a secret boyfriend, if they have, especially an older boyfriend, those are definitely some of the things that, um, that you're going to want to look for. If they start talking about sex in a different way, uh, maybe they were, you know, more modest, but now they're talking about it being no big deal or uh, something like that. That can be uh, a sign. And then if there's drugs or alcohol and that's something new, uh, that can mean a lot of things, in, in, including human trafficking. And I think the third piece is so many of these things occur online. Um, the police will tell you that. It's, it's much more rare that somebody drives up uh, the street in some bad part of town um, looking for uh, a, a prostitute. These, these things are being arranged online through burner phones, chat rooms, uh, dark web, things like that. So if your teen is online, that's the more likely scenario that that they're going to get uh, tricked or trapped into these situations. And we could definitely talk about some of those, you know, tips for parents. Yeah, I think we should do that. Um, and that that's probably the next uh, logical step. I mean, the, the, the number one thing that I'm taking away, which of course we don't, we don't have electronics in our family and I've never, I've always advocated against having electronic devices for children. I just don't think it's appropriate, but this is, this is an obvious reason for why you wouldn't do that. But I'm zeroing in on what you're saying, especially with respect to gaming, because that is oftentimes viewed as such an, such an innocuous, such an innocent thing that uh, a lot of people will, will let their children play online games uh, either through a console or through a, through a computer. And they just assume, okay, well, the, at least the kid is doing something, that I can control or that I can supervise and he's at home and therefore he's safe. But what I hear you saying is that he may not be safe. He or she may not be safe, especially with these chat rooms and these games. Yeah. Just about every app application has some kind of private messaging chat room capabilities. And so uh, these people can create a profile very quickly, very easily, and, um, and and look like they're just another uh, 13-year-old, just like, you know, potentially your kid. And so, you know, I, 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 have, I have several suggestions in the book. The last chapter includes kind of what to do and some tips for parents, but I, I want to ma make sure I bring up four important things. So the first one is really easy, is if you're kid has a cell phone or even if they don't i suppose is do they know your phone number by heart not just if their cell phone dies but if they're in trouble and they don't have access to their contact database do they know your phone number to call you for help 
any kind of help. So that's real easy. That needs to be drilled in that, and they probably should have more than one number, you know, both parents, grandparents, uh, trusted friends, et cetera. So that's definitely one item. The other thing, as you mentioned, is know what, what they're doing online. What applications are they using? What games are they in? And get involved in that. You know, be the parent, not the friend. And go and see what they're up to and what's, who are they talking to? Because one of the other points is their friends. And that could be friends on their uh, Instagram account or Facebook account or gaming. Well, do they actually know them in person? Are they actually their school friends or are they some random people that you have no idea? I was talking to a police officer the other day and he said that the typical teenage girl has thousands of friends. Now they don't actually know those most of those people that's who is in their quote circle of friends. And once you're in, especially with the popular crowd, if you're friends with them, everybody else will have no problem also being your friend or follower, depending upon the application. So you really have to know kind of who their friends are. And then kind of the final point is you need to know their password. You, you, you need to tell them that I'm gonna check on you not just not because I necessarily don't trust you, but because I want to make sure that you're safe and there's and there's no stranger, uh, you know, on online. In the old days, you'd keep teach your kids stranger danger from somebody who approaches you in the park and says, "Oh, can you help me find my puppy?" Well, those days are long gone. It's the predators online that you need to be most worried about because. They're almost invisible. You, you, there's no face behind it. They've downloaded some picture from the internet to look like whatever they want to look like. If they're targeting 13-year-olds, they're going to have a, a picture as their profile that looks just like one of your kid's friends. So they're, they're almost invisible in that sense. And I, and I think that that's something that the parents really need to get involved. It, it kind of goes back to basic parenting. It's not rocket science. But it has more, you know, negative con con consequences than it did, say, when I was a kid, when it was stranger danger and you're worried about some strange guy in the park. It does seem like um, the childhood that I had, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm approaching 40 and I suspect you're a bit older than I am, but the childhood that I had and certainly the childhood you may have had is no more. It's not attainable. I mean, we have to have Hawkeyes on our children now. And unfortunately, the predatorial behavior of our fellow countrymen has, has increased to the end. And most shockingly, and I guess not shockingly, depending on your, your point of view, really, uh, is that it doesn't appear that there is a, a very serious national effort to reverse this trend or eradicate this problem. I think some people on the right anyway, and, and, and especially some traditional Catholics believe that a lot of politicians are in on this business and the elites and, you know, with Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell and you know, high finance and Hollywood, all sort of, the beneficiaries of this business. And perhaps that's why it's, it's, it's such a big problem. I don't, I don't know where you stand on that thought, John, but, but just the thought that the innocence of childhood of, of having a safe, normal childhood where you can play outside uh, is, is coming to an end. Yeah. The kids today do not remember a day before the internet and I think that's hard for a lot of parents to really let that sink in. And the big factors on the negative side is, I would refer to it as a lot of what's part of the modern culture. So, hmm. you know, one of the, one of the stories 
it's in the book talks about um, a little bit of insight into uh, the pornography industry. And one of the things that's happening is that the average age of viewing pornography is shockingly in that eight to 10 year old um, age group. And that young, uh, without any supervision, those young minds are going to get rewired. And that's going to, you know, that takes sex out of the context of love and marriage. Um, pornography is trending to be more violent and more extreme. And, and so what is that telling girls and boys who are viewing that? It, it's telling them that, especially with um, young, young girls, is your value is based upon your sexuality. And that really, that's what, that's a subset of, I would say the the sexualization mm -hmm. of our children. If you're a parent of a 12 year old girl, you can't go to the store and find age appropriate clothes. Yeah, that's, right. really, that, that's really hard to do. That was hard when my kids were teens and it's even worse now. And so you've got, you know, whether it's a curriculum in school that's bringing things that were only talked about at college, you know, health classes. Now they're bringing a lot of those discussions into the kindergarten. And so you're really kind of sexualizing these kids and you're almost teaching them not how to say no, but you're teaching them, you know, how to just how to communicate consent. And, and that's kind of the wrong message. It's certainly not the traditional Catholic message that, um, that there's morals and there's values associated with love, sex, and marriage. And when you're devaluing those things in the culture, when you're taking God out of the school and out of the public square, um, you're just falling deeper and deeper into these problems. And they're resulting in a lot of things. And to me, kind of the bullseye, the worst thing is the human trafficking. And that's where I was focused. With regards to, to finding your way out, culture is against you. Public schools are against you. Uh, the technology is against you. The, just the general uh, criminality of the country is against you. Not a lot make it out, but some do. What is the key to how some have been able to escape this, uh, this hellhole, um, and, and how can we get more, uh, out of the lifestyle? Uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's more nonprofits than ever that help with, uh, people trying to kind of put their life back together. And so that's a good thing. And I, you know, I would encourage people to get involved with that. And if, if it, if it occurred when you were a teen, you may need to go back to school to uh, earn your GED. Uh, you need to learn life skills. And one of the key things is, is housing. Uh, you need to you know, kind of get your life back together first before you can do kind of the everyday you know, average person tasks. And housing is such a big issue. There's only about 300 beds in the entire country and most of those have been have been put together in the last 20 years that's just woefully inadequate it's really hard because that costs a lot of money you need staff you need people to help with uh, with counseling and so a lot of that you know has to be has to be put together but it's likely that if you've gone through this experience um, and, and even sexual abuse uh, with, without trafficking is there's a certain amount of trauma and brokenness, and you need help with that. You know, one of my uh, one one of the chapters is about a um, a survivor uh, th who most of the the story talks about her healing and recovery journey, and you know she would say things like there isn't a pill to heal the broken heart. You can see a psychiatrist or a counselor, but there's no amount of, mm. of prescription medicine that, you know, that um, that can really heal that broken heart. 
And there's things that she talked about that, that I never even thought about. Just little things like fears that the average person doesn't have. The, the relationship with money is warped because they were sold for money um, for sex. So they don't have a money relationship as say a, a, a regular um, you know, average person. And, you know, they always are kind of looking at what their situation is. And w one of the stories talks about um, Angela, who was in her 40s. She goes to a, a retreat, uh, kind of a women's retreat for healing and nurturing. And um, it was a great experience. And she told me the first thing she did when she got there was a thought that popped into her head. If something goes wrong, how close am I? to town that I can escape. And of course, nothing bad like that happened, but those are the kinds of thoughts that pop into your head. And this was decades after her traumatic experience. You know, certain words like playtime. Well, playtime for her means something much different than, than it does for the oh, average God. person out there. Yeah, and, wow. you know, in her story, she talked about the other F word, which was forgiveness. And a lot of the, her chapter, I just pulled her journaling, her letters in her own words. So you could really get to know this person. And she had to come to terms with, with what happened to her. And, you know, she said, no matter how much you want, you can't change your family history. Uh, you can't change what was done. You can only deal with what you have and move forward. And for her, a big piece of that was forgiveness, but that took decades to happen. And I think anybody who's been through trauma, anybody who wants to hear a story about perseverance in the face of adversity, this is the story you need to read. Wow. I'm going to open it up to the live chat because some people have had questions for you, John. And the first question is, what is the success rate or can you speak to the success rate of locating these pimps and arresting them seems like there are so many of them and it's like a losing battle. But um, have you, have you seen any statistics on that or at least any, any success stories that you can tell us about? Sure. So uh, the law enforcement officer um, was on a federal task force and what he told me uh, was specifically for the Denver area was that they may process a hundred cases per year. And he estimated there was probably another 900 that they didn't have any idea about. Wow. So that's a 10% rate. Um, a lot of these guys, they move from town to town. They may, you know, in order to make their victim isolated, they may uh, move them all the time, which means they're going up and down what's called you know, major trafficking corridors, which are typically interstates. In Colorado, that's I-70, I-25, you know, to the north of us, I-80. Those are major routes. And um, and so that, so it, unfortunately, I don't have a good stat uh, or a happy stat for you if, if he's accurate with about 10%. Wow. Um, our next question comes from a regular RTF listener and then i hesitate to bring it up but i'm going to uh it's white wolf and he says does john think that society is so broken that the institutions are no real help anymore how can one be sure that the very place you're seeking help has not itself been compromised yeah i i you know one of the stats that i've heard um you know from the experts that i that i interviewed is that somebody who is trafficked many times they don't see themselves as a victim they've been kind of brainwashed in, into thinking that this is their life and they can be seen up to nine times by somebody and not be identified as as a victim of trafficking and that can be wow uh, you know the police that can be medical professionals uh the foster care system the courts etc that's not unheard of. And that, that also makes it very difficult to, uh, to get out of that situation. 
Many, many people are re-trafficked by somebody else if they do escape. Um, there's certainly a lot of problems with the systems uh, in government agencies. Um, but what I can tell you is that most places are strengthening laws for especially underage uh, human trafficking. And there are a lot more resources from, from nonprofits that are out there. And I think, I think awareness is growing. So I think that's definitely helping. Uh, you could look at it as a losing battle. I, I think that there's a, when you hear a success story, when you talk to a survivor, and I've had people talk to me that, that are not in, in the book, that just were impacted, they heard about the project. And when you talk to them, I'm just blown away by how much strength that they have. And I, I talked to this lady who, who was re-trafficked twice and uh, you know, she has a whole other story and, and yeah, I could probably write a whole book on her. And what she said kind of at the end of our conversation was somehow I knew God was looking out for me, even though I was in the worst of situations. And I was just blown mm -hmm. away how she's not bitter and hateful. Now, she absolutely said, I have trust issues with most people, which mm -hmm. I totally, totally understand that. But just the strength to carry on is a testament a little bit, I think, to that kind of human spirit. And when you hear those stories, those are the ones that really stick with you. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot that you don't hear about that have ended in the opposite direction. Yeah. But there's still a lot to, you know, to, to be proud about, in, about the human spirit. I think if you'll take one more question from the live chat is from Chris and he's asking you if you could address um, the explosion of massage parlors, whether or not these are in, in your view places where human trafficking is going on and, and maybe do you think we should be avoiding these kinds of places or is that just too obvious? So uh, I I've seen several headlines of massage parlors um, having trafficking um, and prostitution. So it's definitely a real thing. Uh, some cities such as Colorado Springs is looking into that and looking into it, strengthening some regulations and some of the things that they need to do. It also can be a um, factor into labor trafficking, which is something we haven't talked about. I didn't write about, but labor trafficking actually happens more than sex trafficking and that's where somebody is through a force, fraud, or coercion, uh, providing es essentially um, labor for free. And that hits uh, a different population, such as the immigrant population, which you sometimes see in massage parlors, uh, farms, construction industry, restaurant industry, etc. That's a whole other issue. But uh, the massage parlor is kind of a um, an issue that I think that if that's something where you want to go, you definitely want to check out the reputation of that outfit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the book is called, it's not about sex. I'm going to pull up your website one, one more time. You can go to it's not about.com. You can purchase the book from the giant uh, South American river if you want to. But my guess is that if you go down here and you click on, purchase a signed copy that helps you out more. I'm sure being an independent kind of self-published author like you are, John, is not uh, the, the, the quickest path to being a millionaire. So I would, <laughs> I would encourage people to spend the 1995 on this book. Who would be the, the, the best people to send this book to John? Are you talking pastors, teachers, who, who needs a signed copy of this book so that we can get the word out about the, uh, the, the seriousness of this problem? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's definitely a good read and a, uh, a learning experience for everybody. But it's definitely for somebody who thinks that this isn't a problem in my neighborhood. It isn't a problem in my gated community 
or it isn't a problem with my kids or, or my friend's kids. Because uh, it really is the under the radar issue that we're seeing. And, and that's why I specifically picked suburban and small town uh, America and stories that, that came from there. So I think it's, it's, it's definitely for somebody who wants to learn more and have a really good read uh, as a result of it. But it's definitely, you know, if you want to send it to somebody, somebody who doesn't think it's a problem. Well, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced at this point that we should all think it's a problem. And my hat's off to you. My congratulations, John, for having the courage to write about this problem. Would you give us a sneak preview into what your third book uh, may be about? I know you're, you're probably batting it around and, and, and all that, but have you thought about it? Uh, yes. So I, uh, my working title is It's Not About the Devil, and I want to talk stories about people who are fighting more pure evil and i'll be identifying that going forward excellent well thank you again for your time and again the website is it's not about dot com uh thanks everybody for watching it was great talking to you thanks for having me on really appreciate it my pleasure come back soon mm -hmm.